Good morning once again, and for the first time, I believe, our sister Hannah Bennett was converted in the U.S., but now lives in Palmerston North with plans to move to Auckland. She's watching online, so hello, Hannah! Hannah Bennett from Palmerston North, everybody. And this is July 1. Can you believe it? It's halfway through 2018 already. So if you haven't got your New Year's resolution sorted out now, now's a good time to reevaluate and see how they're all going. And also a few months, maybe weeks ago, we announced that Vivian and Jane will now assist the kids' ministry crew. And uh, the report has come back. They're doing a fantastic job. The kids' ministry is really pleased with them, and it's still growing, and it's doing really cool things. And if you're a parent, they send out monthly newsletters, which are also on the website. Very cool stuff. It even gives very practical family devos, where all you have to do is read the script, and voila, family devo sorted out. So check those out. They have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 7, and we're continuing our study of the book of Acts. And this morning, we have a pretty awesome speech, a pretty awesome sermon from our brother named Stephen. And it, is, it appears in Acts chapter 7. And so when you, when you read the Bible, it's similar to what's called a mosaic. And a mosaic is one piece of art made up of many tiny pieces. And so, for instance, if you were to look at this on the screen and try to make sense of that alone, I don't know what you'd come up with, but it probably wouldn't make too much sense because it's just one individual piece, right? Anybody know what that is a smaller piece of? Brick wall, tire tracks, dinosaur marks are all incorrect. Pardon? Well, thank goodness I actually have the picture here to show you what it is, because this is similar when you read the Bible, because you can read one story and say, this, this really doesn't make sense, until you place it in the larger context of many, of many, many more stories. So when you put that in the context of what it actually is, you see it's a kiwi bird. There you go, it's the beak of a kiwi bird. But when you read one, one small story from the Bible... And you try to make sense of it without the larger picture, it's kind of hard to do. But when you, when you survey and put the whole Bible together, you'll see that it's made up of many smaller stories. And you put them all together to gain a bigger perspective, an actual picture of the whole story of the gospel. Now this morning, that's something what Stephen does is he doesn't just choose one story, but he chooses several to try to create this mosaic for his audience to understand the bigger picture of the Bible. He's connecting the dots of what he understands in the Bible for his audience to hear. Let's pray and, and read his sermon starting in Acts chapter 7. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful we can come before you and take communion and sing and fellowship. And we're just grateful that in Christ we're family, that you've allowed your spirit to dwell inside of us. I do pray that as we read your eternal words, Father, that you open our minds and our hearts to bring us clarity on what you would have us hear and what you would have us do as a result. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So starting in Acts chapter 7. Let's read this entire chapter. It's quite a, quite a piece of scripture here, but let's read it together. And it's something like what we're doing this morning is something similar to when you watch television and you see someone else watching television. What we're doing is we're hearing a sermon about somebody who's actually preaching a sermon. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this, 
<clears throat> he replied, Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you're now living. He gave him no inheritance there, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they'll be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all of his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and his ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hammer at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they could die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child, and every parent thinks that about their child when they're born. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight, and he went over to get a closer look, and he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your jandals or your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. 
This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt, performed wonders and signs in the Red Sea for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. And then he quotes from that. In verse 44, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them. When they took the land from the nations, God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And here's such an encouraging conclusion to his sermon. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed the one who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. And you who have received the law that has been given through angels but have not obeyed it. <coughs> when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they said, come on, bro, that's an awesome sermon. <laughs> they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right, of, right hand of God. The only time he's mentioned standing in the Bible, except for a possible allusion in Daniel chapter 7, or the, the coming of the one like a righteous one. But it's the only time Jesus, every other time Jesus is mentioned sitting. In verse 56, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Whether to applaud Stephen or to judge his hearers, we don't know, but Jesus is standing as Stephen finishes his speech. At this, they cover their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he echoes Christ's own words on the cross. Then he fell to his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul approved of their killing him. And it finishes, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. Philip went to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed were healed. So there was great joy in that city. <coughs> The whole context here is chapters 1 through 7 explore the gospel spreading in Jerusalem. It's, it's only there. But in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had told his uh, apostles that you're my witnesses for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so from 1 to 7, we see the gospel spreading in Jerusalem. But here, after Stephen is martyred and killed, the gospel will start to spread to Judea. And Samaria, it begins here in chapter 8, and as Acts progresses, the gospel does push out to the ends of the earth. Here in this passage, he's on trial by the Sanhedrin. Same people that put Jesus on trial. Same people who put the apostles on trial. And now again, Stephen is in this position of defending himself to these charges. What are these charges? Well, you'll find them in Acts chapter 6. They basically say this. Stephen speaks bad about the temple. And about Moses. He speaks bad about the temple and about Moses. So they say, are these charges true, Stephen? And then Stephen launches into his Old Testament survey about what happened in history. Let's look at two things that we find out from Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin. <coughs> Point number one, God is always on the move. God is always on the move. Throughout his speech, Stephen covers four characters from the Old Testament to make this point. God is not limited to a certain place at all. He's always on the move. First of all, he talks about Abraham. And in verse 2 of chapter 7, he says, God appeared to Abraham where? And this is, this is Stephen trying to prove his point to the Sanhedrin. He appeared to him in Mesopotamia, which is the far right red circle. The Holy Land is Jerusalem. So what is Stephen doing? He's saying, hey, look, guys, I know, I know you're really concerned about the temple, but way before the temple was built, God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia, not the holy place, okay? That's the point that he's trying to make. And not only did he appear to Abraham outside of the Holy Land, but Joshua 24 says that Abraham's family worshipped idols. So Stephen said, look, God appeared to this family that was worshipping pagan idols outside of the Holy Land. So don't be so consumed by the temple. That's one character that he uses. He also talks about Joseph in verse 9. Joseph was in Egypt. And what does verse 9 say? God was with him. So he was also outside of the Holy Land. Plus, God's promise to Abraham of making them a numerous nation started to be fulfilled while they were in slavery. So even in the worst of moments, God is still fulfilling his promise outside of the Holy Land. God is not stationary. Then he says, Moses... 
And remember, Moses is the one that he's being accused of defaming. And so when he talks about Moses, he says, no, no, I, I think highly of Moses. I, I respect Moses. I respect the law. But, but think about Moses. Where did God appear to Moses? In Mount Sinai. That's what verse 30 says. He's in a desert. And what does God say? This is holy place. So I, I know you're so consumed with the temple, but God was appearing to many, many people outside of the temple, outside of the holy place, even in desert areas. Even while they were wandering around, it was a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by day and night. And, and so God was mobile. He wasn't limited to the temple. He was always on the move. That's what he's trying to explain to this people. And then he kind of finishes with David and Solomon. They wanted to build a temple, but the idea from the prophet says, really, God says, you're going to build a house for me? I've created everything. How's that going to work? There's no place that can hold me. There's no place that can restrict me. There's no place that can limit me. There's no place that can pin me down. But the Sanhedrin was pinning God down to the temple. Saying, this is the holy place. This is where God resides. This is what it's all about. And Stephen says, no, look at your history. Connect the dots. Look at the bigger picture. God is always on the move. God is always doing something. God is always mobile. Moses was mobile. Israel was mobile. And God is always on the move. Why is this a big deal? Well, one of the Psalms refer to this as well. Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. I used to think this was a psalm written by a parent with young children. <laughs> I mean, if I go over here, you're still following me. If I go here, where can I go from your presence? And then I realized, oh, it's not. It's written about God. <laughs> you, can't, you can't escape God's presence. But if I go here, you're there. And, and the psalm continues. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me. The light will become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. The psalmist understood God is everywhere. He's always on the move, and he's always doing something. Stephen, in his presentation to the Sanhedrin, says, look at the history. God is always on the move. Stop protecting the temple and your authority. Now, this is a very incredible, profound concept that Stephen is communicating. He looks at the history of Israel and says, you know, you guys protect the temple, but it's more about God being mobile. I think there's a trouble with our, ourselves is that we have limited, finite minds. At least I do. I'm pretty sure you do as well. And what we tend to do is we tend to reduce God to concepts and ideas that we all understand. And that we all feel comfortable with. Let's put him in a temple. Let's put him in a box. I wish I had a little pink box to put my Jesus in. Or whatever box it was. But let's put him in a building. Let's put him in a temple. Let's put him in Freeman's Bay. Let's restrain him. Let's restrict him. Let's limit it so we can understand him. Let's tame God. So we can understand it. That's what they're doing in the temple. If you do stuff outside of the temple, it's unauthorized. And Stephen said, hey, you've got to be careful. That's a very dangerous thing to say. God is always on the move. He's too big to be tamed. When you're doing well, God is with you. 
But when you're not doing well, God is still moving some way, some shape, some form. When you're making good decisions, God is there. When you're making bad decisions, God doesn't suddenly disappear. He's still moving. He's still doing something in some way. Even when you make a string of bad decisions, God is still there moving in some way, somehow, whether you know it or not. To limit God to say, oh, because I'm doing well, because I'm doing well now, God is with me or I'm doing bad now, God is far. I I think we know what we're saying, but God is always on the move. Nothing stops him from achieving his purpose. You may think, well, let's restrict God to a three-point sermon. Today, we're having a two-point sermon. Because God is always on the move. And, 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 and it helps us understand our view of God should always be under constant revision. Stephen, when he sees this, he says, look, I respect the law. I respect Moses, but let me help you broaden it. We've got to always be revising our understanding of God as we grow spiritually. Our view of God should be expanding we, should, we shouldn't be able to, to limit God or restrict God. It should be ever increasing. We, sh- we should be able to understand that God has this multifaceted approach at accomplishing his will. We should be open to new possibilities. We shouldn't think just because something is happening in a different way than we suspected it, that God's not working. God is always on the move. He used flat pagan nations to bring about his will. God is always on the move. And so we always have to be open to the possibility that God is doing something, despite what you see, despite what you understand. God can never be tied down to one place or one time. And equally true, I believe we're closest to him when we're on the move with him. We're not trying to limit him or pin him down to the temple. So Stephen is trying to say this to his peers. Look, God is always moving. Don't keep him in the temple. And that's one of the things they get offended about. Second, and lastly, because we can't pin God to three points. You can resist or realign to his spirit. Now Stephen, after he gives this sermon, he he does come strong at the very end and he offers them a chance to change but but he also wants to see you guys have a history of rejecting the Holy Spirit so first of all God's mobile is always moving but you know what you've always resisted it you've always rejected it and he gives several examples <coughs> Joseph he said they, they were sold into slavery, but God was with him. They didn't realize he was the agent that would save Israel until their second visit. So they, they chucked him in a well, sold into slavery. He's brought up in Potiphar's house, and, but nobody really realized he was the one to deliver Israel. So he said, look, here's a clear example of this. And he also uses Moses as an example. In verse 25, It says, Moses thought his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they didn't. There's a very clear, you you guys think highly of Moses, I think highly of Moses, but you didn't listen to Moses. You didn't listen to Moses. And, And the whole time, the language is, he's saying, our ancestors, our ancestors, which will be a key. And then in verse 35, this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, that the angel appeared to him in the bush. 
So this is, this is the same guy that they didn't think was the ruler now is actually sent to be their ruler and deliverer. See, look, even our ancestors weren't paying attention to Moses. Later in verse 37, Moses himself says, one day God's going to send somebody else like me. And it's going to be Jesus. You guys better listen to him. But they didn't listen to Jesus. That's what Stephen will continue to say. And then in verse 39, he said they continued to, to disobey. They rejected Moses and turned their hearts back to Egypt. Later on, it says, as for this, mellow, as for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt. So there is, there is the confirmation. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt. As for Moses who rescued us. As for Moses, the guy who delivered us, we don't know what's happened to him. We don't know. Make us a calf, a golden calf, and we'll worship that. The very person God picked that they claimed, rescued and delivered them, they rejected. And they disobeyed Moses, which in turn was disobeying God. And so at the end, at the end of his speech, as he sums it up, instead of saying, our ancestors, they listened to Moses, our ancestors, he says, you, not us. It's not us anymore. It's not we. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You have uncircumcised ears and uncircumcised hearts, which is trash talk. That's what David says to Goliath. You uncircumcised Philistine. This is, this is Stephen saying, you guys have always rejected it. You got to change. You got to look at the big picture. All of the Bible is these stories built together to form one large story about Jesus. And you're rejecting it. And you're resisting it. You're stiff-necked. Was there ever a prophet you didn't persecute? Because it wasn't just Joseph. It wasn't just Moses. It was prophet after prophet. And then finally, it was Jesus whom you rejected, resisted, and killed. Man, that, that's why they're gnashing. I've never heard what this communal sound of gnashing of teeth sounds like. But this is what they're, they're gnashing their teeth. at Stephen as he's trying to convict them. And the word he uses... <coughs> Stiff-necked. Sclerotrehilos, which is two words. Sclero is hard. Trehilos, that's the yellow one. Trehilos is where we get trachea from, so throat. So hard throat or hard neck, because if you cut your throat, you're dead. That's the idea that your neck is an important part of your being. You have a hard throat, you have a stiff neck. It's not like you slept on it wrong and it's sore. That's not what he's saying. I know you guys are stiff neck because you had a bad night's sleep. No, you have a hardened neck. You have a stiff heart. Now that word sclero is, is where we get some, some words in our, in our English. We're like otosclerosis. Now what is otosclerosis? That's a bone growth that overgrows your ear and prevents you from hearing until you get surgery. It's a hard ear. And it prevents sound from going to the organ. It's hard of hearing. It's also multiple sclerosis, which is when plaque-like material builds up in the nervous system and it hardens and it prevents the brain and nervous system from functioning. Harden of a nervous system. And both, both of these conditions have serious consequences. And, and, and so this is the kind of 
the way that we use the, the, the Greek word sclero. But Stephen is saying, look, man, you guys are hard. It's not like you just did a one-off resistance. There's a continual pattern of resisting and rejecting the Holy Spirit. That's dangerous. And so the question for me and you and us is will we resist or realign to the Holy Spirit? In verse 57, they're covering their ears. Now you know and I know we've had conversations with people that they're covering their ears in a metaphorical way. Right? They're not like, but they're, they're not really hearing you. They're covering their ears. And maybe if that's a one-off occasion, amen, because we've all done that. But when you have a pattern of covering your ears... And resisting what the Spirit is trying to communicate with you. When you do that once, amen, you can get, you can get forgiven, you can sort it out. You can, but when you do it twice, there's that overgrowth that happens on your heart. The sclero starts happening. When you do it three times, it becomes calloused. And when you do it multiple times, you're numb to it and you don't even know you're resisting the spirit. And, and it happens, you know, to many, many people throughout their spiritual life. It can happen to you. It can happen to me. It can happen to us. But prayerfully, when people speak to us in the fellowship and the same idea keeps popping up, you're uncovering your ears. If people have to tell you, if people have to tell you the same thing periodically over a period of time, it's possible you're resisting what the Spirit is trying to tell you. And it doesn't even have to be from the brothers and sisters at church. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's somebody, your schoolmate. Somebody's trying to communicate something to you. Uncover your ears and stop resisting the Holy Spirit. I'd much rather realign myself with the Holy Spirit. In contrast to resisting, even despite Israel's history, what is God doing? There's these two parallel stories, the unfaithfulness of Israel, and on the bottom, the faithfulness of God. Running parallel. God say, hey, you know what? You're unfaithful, you're unfa- but I'm still faithful. I'll still make you into nation. I'll still give you the law. I'll still bring the Messiah. I'll still give you my spirit. Constantly faithful. And when we realign ourselves with the Holy Spirit, we get the impression of God's faithfulness. But what it also does in Acts chapter 8, when when we realign ourselves with the Spirit, it lets the mission keep going. Stephen is stoned, Saul is introduced, and he's approved of the killing. But in verse 1 and 2, a persecution breaks out, and people start spreading everywhere. The gospel is going to continue when people realign themselves with the Holy Spirit. And when you and I align ourselves with the Holy Spirit, it's bound to make an impression on somebody. Acts chapter 20, verse 20. Here is the Apostle Paul quoted in Acts 20, verse 20. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing them. You think that didn't leave a lasting impression in Paul's mind? Seeing Stephen preach, seeing the Sanhedrin stone him, and the members come and lay their clothes at Saul's feet while he watched in approval. And then when he becomes a Christian, man, this, this, this is tattooed in his mind. Why? Because when we align ourselves with the Holy Spirit, it makes a strong impression even on the hardest of hearts. Because it's the Spirit doing His work. And in Scripture, I mean, nobody can die with much more assurance than Stephen. 
You know what I mean? You're getting stoned and you see the heavens open and you see Jesus standing. How awesome is that? What a way to go out. When you align yourself with the Holy Spirit, you have Jesus' approval. You know, he failed to convince this group. They didn't, they didn't say that's a great message. They stoned him. And his martyrdom has this profound influence. People start spreading Judea, Samaria, the Apostle Paul eventually. But these words are still here for us to consider. And we cannot limit God. We cannot restrict God to this building, a format, a model, or whatever. God is always on the move. And we need to move along with Him. And you and me and I and and all of us and every other pronoun you can think of, we need to realign ourselves with the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit can continue to work and spread His Word throughout this city and this country. Amen.